Luke 22, verse 39. Uh, It's the night of the Passover. Uh, Jesus and his disciples have eaten it in a secret place. Jesus has acknowledged that he knows he's going to be betrayed and he's told his disciples that they will all abandon him. Verse 39. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed. Father, if you are willing... Take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to his disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping? he asked them. Get up and pray that you will not fall into temptation. While he was still speaking, a crowd came up. And the man, who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus answered, no, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard and the elders who'd come for him, am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts and you didn't lay a hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. Then seizing him, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance. But when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had all sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, This man was with him. But he denied it. Woman, I don't know him. A little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, Certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. And Peter replied, Man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter And then Peter remembered the words the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. This is the word of the Lord. Um, Father, thanks for this great opportunity to get into your word today. And we uh, just do pray that um, by your spirit that we would be given understanding, that we would Uh, know more about Jesus, know more about his uh, passion to uh, obey your will uh, for our benefit and at his expense, uh, that we might be uh, the same, that we might be people who are fully committed to serving you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Now, I remember a missionary leader uh, who was serving in South Thailand uh, in the Muslim uh, community, uh, sharing with me once about the most difficult decision that he and his fellow workers had ever had to make. Two of the missionaries on their team had been uh, captured. They'd been kidnapped by uh, Muslim separatists and a ransom note had been received for a considerable sum of money. The options were to, thank you Mary, the options were to, to pay up uh, or for the two lady missionaries to be killed. Now that was a circumstance of enormous uh, trial and testing and temptation for him and the other leaders because, as you can well imagine, every bone in his body uh, wanted to say, pay the money, pay the ransom in the hope that uh, he would be able to save the lives of his friends. But there was real turmoil in his heart because uh, if they paid the money, then that would actually put at risk the lives of every other missionary that was serving uh, in South Thailand because word would get around that uh, the missionary society pays up, um, that, it, that there's quick and easy money to be made in, um, <clears throat> in, in um, taking a missionary hostage. And that would jeopardise the work of the gospel that had been going on for decades with much blood, sweat and tears from missionaries. Uh, the policy of that missionary society now is we don't pay ransoms. And uh, uh, that's, uh, that's why. Sometimes there are times when taking an action may be a good thing but it requires greater strength and greater resolve to refrain from taking that action. And uh, that is for the sake of others and for the sake of the greater good of the cause of the kingdom of God. And it's enormous risk. I use that as an illustration but to introduce the whole idea of the, uh, the kind of restraint that the Lord Jesus uh, needed to apply to himself in the Garden of Gethsemane. Because, let's be clear on this, the betrayal and the arrest of Jesus in the Garden on the Mount of Olives was pure evil. Uh, it was a wrong thing to do. It was a wrong thing to happen. It was pure evil on a cosmic scale. And Jesus had the power to stop it but he chose not to. This was no ordinary betrayal. This was no ordinary arrest. Jesus himself calls it the hour of darkness or the hour when darkness reigns. But it was God's hour. It was the hour of God's choosing. The delivering over of Jesus had not happened prior to this because it was not God's time for that to happen. But now it was God's time. And you remember last week when we looked at um, 
Luke 21, the Passover meal, when Jesus took up the cup, what did he say? He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for many. In so doing, Jesus is signalling the transition from the old covenant to the new covenant. Jesus is announcing that the time has now come, that this is now the hour for the spilling, for the pouring out of the blood of uh, God the Son. The time has now arrived. This is the hour of God's choosing, but that which would happen in the garden was pure evil. When Jesus was in Jerusalem, uh, every night he spent on the Mount of Olives. And if you open up your Bibles at Luke 22, we see that <clears throat> it's no different on this night, the night of the Passover meal. Judas has left the Passover. He's left the upper room, as John in his gospel says, and he went out into the night. And in more ways than one, in more ways than one, did he go out into the darkness. And now the remaining disciples have now followed Jesus into up the Mount of Olives and into the Garden of Gethsemane, where in verses 39 through to 46, we, we, we glimpse something of the unspeakable anguish of Jesus. He, first of all, instructs his disciples to pray. They must pray because the enemy is about to strike. And this will be the moment of temptation. This will be the time of temptation. They will be greatly tempted. And then Jesus, we're told, he withdraws from them about a stone's throw away. That's interesting, isn't it? That um, I checked this one out. That's act this, this verse is actually where the saying comes from. We talk about something being a stone's throw. This is where it comes from. We know from Matthew's gospel that Jesus took three of the other disciples. He took Peter, James and John just with him a little bit further, a little bit closer to where he would pray. And that perhaps explains something of how we know what it is that Jesus prayed. The content of his prayer is he spoke to the Father, which we read about in verse 42. And I'm going to read that for you, verse 42. In, in verse 42, Jesus prays to God his Father and he says, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Drops of blood falling to the ground. Now, I, Luke doesn't actually say that Jesus sweated drops of blood. Uh, he says that his sweat was like drops of blood. I understand that hippopotamuses or rhinoceroses can sweat blood, but I, I'm not sure that this is that's what's going on here. Um, it seems that rather that this has got to do with, with his anguish so being so intense 
that uh, perspiration has formed into, into heavy drops, as Luke says, like, like drops of blood, like blood does. Whatever the case, this is a, a tangible expression of the intensity of the anguish that is going on in the, in the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, so that in verse 42, when he prays to the Father, he prays to the Father, he's saying, Lord, Father, would you take this cup from me? In the Old Testament, the cup uh, is used to symbolise the, the pouring out of, of the wrath of God. You see, the great suffering of the, of, of the cross, it's, it's not the actual crucifixion as as abominable as that is, as dreadful as that is, the great suffering is that the sin of the world is laid on Jesus. And that there is a, on the cross, there is a separation between God the Father and God the Son who, who had lived in perfect unity, in perfect fellowship for all of eternity. And now it is, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, that on the cross, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us as he was punished in our place. Now, we, we, we simply cannot comprehend how much Jesus suffered uh, as he prepared himself in the garden for that eventuality. He knew that it was coming. If this cup could be taken from me, he pleads to the Father. If there is some other way, yet not my will, but, but yours be done. It's interesting, isn't it, that some people say that if you pray, whatever you pray, if you pray a prayer, if you take something to God, and so long as you pray in faith and you don't doubt, then God will give you exactly what you've asked for. Well, here we've got the perfect man praying the perfect prayer and the answer is no. Instead, that doesn't mean that the Father doesn't listen to him because what God does here is he sends an angel, he sends a messenger, <clears throat> a being who appeared with him in the garden and and strengthened Jesus, gave him strength, gave him courage so that he doesn't give up. And there is a change in, in the demeanour of our Lord here because he now gets up and he returns to his disciples ready to face the enemy. He was tempted in that garden. But see how, you know, Jesus is sometimes referred to as the second Adam. How different is this to the way that the first Adam responded to temptation in the first garden? And so Jesus returns to the, other, the rest of the disciples and, and guess what? Do you think they're, they're praying? No. They're sleeping. Uh, <clears throat> actually, it's... Dr. Luke alone here who actually gives the physical reasons why they're sleeping, <laughs> that they're actually <clears throat> exhausted. Uh, in the Greek it talks about being exhausted from their sorrow, from their, from their grief. But they're sleeping, which is not great because 
even we know that when we are, when we know that we've, we're about to face a situation or a circumstance which is going to be very, very difficult for us, very challenging for us, um, particularly when it impacts on our godliness, when we know that that's coming, what is the best thing that we should be doing? We should be praying, shouldn't we? It's, you know, Paul in Philippians 4, he, you know, do not be anxious about anything, but hand it over to God. Because God is powerful. God loves you and God listens to your prayers. And God, he may not give us exactly what we ask for, but he will strengthen us as he did for his son in the garden here. Uh, when we pray to God, we're handing over the problem to the one who is able to actually help us to deal with it. And our prayers reshape our thinking, calm our hearts, and give us courage as he strengthens us. But the disciples were sleeping. And it shows in what happens next. In verse 47, Judas arrives. And he arrives not alone. He arrives with a small crowd of elders, chief priests, and armed guards from the temple. A few hours earlier, possibly even less than that, Judas was sitting around in the upper room, reclining with them, um, sharing in the Passover meal, all the food and the wine and all that sort of thing. But notice how Luke refers to him now. He calls him the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve. Not exactly warm, is it? That's not exactly how you'd refer to your friend, the man who was called Judas. Judas's plan was to, to greet Jesus with a kiss. And that way he would identify who Jesus was so that the soldiers would know who to arrest. So that they wouldn't accidentally go and arrest somebody else, giving Jesus the chance to flee. And so he greets Jesus with a kiss, supposedly a friendly greeting. But in verse 48, Jesus exposes him. Are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? He says to Judas. Now, I reckon that would have unnerved Judas, don't you? Because for a couple of reasons. First of all, Jesus sees straight through him. He knows this is not a friendly kiss. This is the friend, the kiss of an enemy. And secondly, because as Jesus looks him in the eye, he reminds him of who it is that he's betraying. Are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? He's betraying the Son of Man, the Son of Man who in Daniel 7, in Daniel's vision, uh, ascended to be with the Ancient of Days and was bestowed with all glory and honour and power as the one who would be the ruler of God's everlasting kingdom. Are you betraying that one with a kiss? We don't know the well, we do know the effect that that had on Judas. I imagine that he was deeply disturbed by that and it affected his future. 
But Judas is not the only one un, who was unmasked on that night. In verse 53, the, uh, the religious leaders, they had every opportunity to arrest Jesus on any day when he was teaching in the temple courts. Uh, in the temple, in public, um, it was clear where Jesus was. They, had every, they could have arrested him if, they, if he'd actually committed a crime if they had a valid charge against him. But they didn't. There was no valid charge against Jesus. And they didn't want him arrested because he'd committed a crime. They wanted him arrested because he was exposing their hypocrisy. That he was challenging their position. And so they came in the darkness because their deed was dark. This is your hour, says Jesus, when darkness reigns. They weren't alone in this, though, were they? As the Son of Man now willingly allows that ancient serpent to strike his heel. They're not alone in this. Satan's involved. Jesus shows great restraint in allowing himself to be arrested. The disciples, however, had no such restraint because they had not been in prayer. Uh, they were up for a fight. Uh, remember last week that uh, when Jesus said that things are going to get tough and metaphorically he said you might need a sword, metaphorically, they said, well, hey, we've got a couple of swords. Jesus said, that's enough, you know, and stop that sort of thing. Well, they do have these two swords, and one of the disciples lashed out with a sword and sliced off the ear of the high priest's servant. Um, by the way, can you guess which disciple that might have been? Matthew in his gospel tells us, or John rather in his gospel tells us, it was none other than Peter. Uh, John was actually familiar with the high priest. He knew him personally. He actually gives us the name of the high priest's servant, uh, which was Malchus. Uh, he was well-meaning, but he was wrong. Uh, in John 18, when Jesus was on trial before the Roman governor, Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Because that was the trumped-up charge against him, that he'd claimed that. To which Jesus replied, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But my kingdom is from another place. Uh, and so the reason why um, Jesus doesn't want them to fight is because that's the wrong kind of kingdom. He's also would be keen that there'd be no valid charge against him, i.e. he is leading a, a group of violent men and it's interesting also that, um, and this must, must have astonished those who were there, he puts his hand on the, on the side of the head of the, uh, Dr Luke points out it was the right ear, uh, and he restores the ear. How about that? Now, the arrest of Jesus was evil, but he did not retaliate because it was God's will. Um, some church leaders teach that the, 
The cross of Jesus is not the only way to get to heaven or however you might envisage the ultimate reality. Uh, I was reading yesterday about a <clears throat> church in Sydney that is now running um, Muslim prayer services, uh, not because they're renting out their building to the local mosque, but because that's actually part of their ministry. I know of another church in Sydney that runs Buddhist services, not because they're renting out that part of the building, but because it is actually a part of their ministry, so-called ministry. Um, I know of many uh, church leaders who say that uh, it really doesn't matter who you put your faith in or what you put your faith in, so long as you're sincere about it, that all roads lead to God. You, you, you can believe in yourself, uh, in your own goodness, in your own righteousness by your own achievement religiously and morally and that'll get you into heaven. They usually don't put it as crassly as that. But Muhammad, Buddha, your own efforts, being moral, all roads lead to God so long as you are sincere. Here's a question though. Did the father take the cup away from Jesus? The answer is no. Why not? Because there's no other way. There's no other way. And Jesus submitted his will to the father's will because of that. If there was any other way to get to heaven, if there is any other way that for sinful humanity to be redeemed then God would not have wanted Jesus to go to the cross. If there is any other way, then Jesus drunk the cup in vain. And so Jesus allowed his small, this small crowd of armed guards, chief priests and elders to take him prisoner. And if you go back to earlier that night in the upper room, remember Peter? Peter had confidently assured Jesus that he was willing to do anything. He said, I'll go to prison for you. I'll go to death for you. Well, here's his chance. And is he so willing now? No. Not so willing now. Most of the disciples simply fled. John did not flee. Neither did Peter. Uh, but in verse 54, Peter followed Jesus, but how did he follow Jesus? He followed Jesus at a distance. Now, what does that tell us about Peter? There's a, there's a conflict going on there in his heart, isn't there? There's a real conflict. It's a conflict between love for Jesus and preservation for himself or fear for himself. They took Jesus into the the house of Caiaphas, the high priest. And the high priest's house was like a compound and it had gates and a courtyard, an outside courtyard, but inside the gates and then into the house itself and so on. Uh, Peter followed them as far as the court, courtyard where the small crowd had built themselves a fire to keep themselves warm because they wouldn't know the outcome of the trial before Caiaphas, before, before, before dawn, before the morning. 
So they sat around the fire. Imagine what this was like for Peter. In Gethsemane, he had not prepared himself for this. He hadn't prayed. And now he, he wants to support Jesus, but, but only so far because he's afraid. And here we find the, in verse 56, there is a servant girl. She's also around the fight. She, she looks at Jesus, at, at, at Peter closely, and she thinks to herself, hang on, I, I recognise this man. And she said, hang on, aren't you one of them? Peter denies it. Denies that he was with Jesus. A bit later on, someone else said, aren't you one of those disciples, those followers of Jesus? And again, he denies it. At the Passover meal, when Peter had promised Jesus that he would never that he would go to prison or even death for him, Jesus prophesied to Peter. He prophesied that before the rooster crows that day, that Peter would deny three times that he even knew Jesus. And so here in verse 59, around that fire, somebody else recognised that Peter was a Galilean, probably because of his accent, bit different and if he's a Galilean he was probably with and he says weren't you with them weren't you with Jesus you must have been with Jesus man Peter says I don't know what you're talking about and right on cue a rooster crowed in the garden of Gethsemane Jesus had seen straight through Judas and reminded him who he was dealing with. You betray the Son of Man with a kiss. And now in the courtyard of the high priest, uh, we don't know exactly where Jesus was when he was on trial. It's probably in a, in, in a room that sort of flowed out into the courtyard. But at the moment that the at the sound of the rooster, Jesus standing on trial, he turns around and he can see Peter. Their eyes connect. This is a dreadful moment for Peter. This is a dark, a bleak moment for him because he realises what's just happened. He goes outside and breaks down in tears. He's so disappointed in himself that he has denied his Lord. There are some similarities between Judas and Peter. <clears throat> they both denied Jesus in some form, but there's a massive difference between the two men. The betrayal of Judas came from an evil heart with a love for money. The betrayal by Peter came from an unprepared heart, but with a love for Jesus. For Judas, it led to worldly sorrow and suicide. Suicide. 
For Peter, it took him to a place of godly sorrow and repentance. You see, being sorry isn't enough. Because sorrow can sometimes just be self-pity. A person's sorrow is only godly if it leads to repentance. Paul says that, that godly, worldly sorrow leads to death, but godly sorrow leads to repentance, which leads to life. Must lead to a change of heart. Must lead to different behaviour if it is godly sorrow. Peter's sorrow was godly sorrow. In John chapter 21, when after the resurrection, after Jesus had come back to life, he was gathered together with his disciples and he asked Peter, Peter, do you love me more than these? Peter says, yes, of course, you know that I love you. Three times Jesus asked him. And when Jesus asked Peter the third time, did he love him? We're told that Peter was actually, he felt a bit hurt. He was a bit offended by that. How about that, eh? How about that? Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Well, said Jesus, Peter, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. And he also told him this. He gave him another prophecy. And he prophesied to Peter that when Peter is old, that he would stretch out his hands, which in first century idiom, that's code for crucifixion. He said that you will stretch out your hands and be led to a place where, where you do not want to go. This is a prophecy about Peter's death by crucifixion. John actually says that. Now, Peter did not flee from that. Uh, Peter was by no means perfect. But he didn't now follow Jesus at a distance any longer. He was in it boots and all. For the next 30 years, he faithfully obeyed Jesus, fed the sheep, preached the gospel, doing so knowing that one day that it would take him to the place where he does not want to go, where no one wants to go, where no one should need to go to or want to go to, the place of crucifixion. But although everything in him would be saying, I don't want to be crucified, he did so willingly because there is only one way. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John had healed a cripple and uh, they're going around preaching the gospel to people, telling people about Jesus, about his death and his resurrection. And as a result of that, Peter found that he was now on trial that he now stood in the same place that Jesus stood because he was now on trial before some of the very same people who that night who had judged Jesus, including Caiaphas, 
the high priest. But this time, filled not with fear, but rather with God's spirit, Peter faced up to the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law to tell them about Jesus. And he says to them, Jesus of Nazareth, the one whom you crucified, God has raised him from the dead. And he goes on to tell them that salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. This is Peter. This is the chief priests. This is the high priest. And there is no other name, says Peter, by which we must be saved. And why? Because the Father did not take the cup away. That's, it. That's how we know. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we want to thank you for the, um, the anguish that Jesus went through, uh, that you strengthened him, and that against his own will, he was prepared to obey your will uh, for the sake of our salvation as the only way by which the debt which we owe to you could be paid. Father, as we think about the frailty of men, we think of the sinfulness, the evil that had gripped Judas, and we think of the, the weakness of, of Peter, and we thank you for your, for your grace towards him, for your restoration of Peter, and we pray for ourselves that, uh, like Peter, that we would be um, repentant of, the, of, of the times when we have uh, not honoured you in the way that we should. We pray, Father God, that we would be willing to sacrifice our comforts, our pleasures, uh, for the sake of that greater good of taking the gospel to those who need to be saved. Strengthen us, we pray, in the hour of trial. In Jesus' name, amen.